Again, my name is Pastor Joe. I want to welcome you to Epiphany Church. And we are starting a new series this fall. And it's called In Gloucester As It Is in Heaven. Amen? In Gloucester As It Is in Heaven. Now, if you don't live in Gloucester, don't get mad at me. Don't throw nothing at me. Because you can just say whatever town you're in. <laughs> Right? <laughs> but it's more in Gloucester. We want to make that clear. No. <laughs> no, in our lives, on our block, in our marriages, in our relationship with our kids, um, at our job, wherever we are. And we are going to be in this teaching, in this season of looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which was Jesus's teaching. If we don't have time to listen to what Jesus had to teach, like you don't have time for nothing. <laughs> and this message, while there was a moment when Jesus was on a mount and this happened, we also know from different recordings of it that this was sort of the message that Jesus was always preaching. He was always saying these things. And so what we get here is a summary of many instances when Jesus would go around and he would talk about the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God is like. And he's basically giving his stump speech. And, 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 and I, I'm going to say this with regret because it almost brings it down way too far. But this is Jesus's I'm with her. This is Jesus's make America great again, right? This is Jesus's, like, I'm coming and I'm telling you how I want my system to be, how I want my government to be, what I want it to look like in my kingdom. And the title of tonight's message is Counterculture. Because Jesus wanted to start something that would turn the world upside down, that would be the opposite in most cases of what the world valued, we'll see that Jesus values. It is a radical message, it is a countercultural message. Now picture this, I need you to picture this. Rome's in charge of the known world. And there's this Middle Eastern guy and he goes up on a mountain somewhere and he's known like a magician because he could do crazy things and he healed people. You hear me? And there's so many people. At one point there were 5,000 men besides women and children. So they were coming to him and once again, he has the crowds and he's out on the mountain. Yeah, over in Palestine, right? And he's out there and he looks at the crowds and then he's about to talk about his stump speech. He's about to talk about how he is bringing in this new order into the world. This is radical. 
is what I'm trying to say. We've heard this probably when we were kids. We've heard these words at some point in our lives. And sometimes we tend to tame Jesus's message because we're so overly familiar with these words. But we need to capture the reality that this is a guy that is marginalized. Climbing up a mountain and talking to people, it was radical. In a sense, Herod was right to fear Jesus. Herod was right. When Jesus was born, the guy in charge of the area tried to kill Jesus because there was a prophecy that there was this new king coming. And guess what? Jesus is still king. Herod is not. Rome no longer exists, but the kingdom of God continues. And there'll be one day where America won't exist, but the kingdom of God will. And so we have to see this, this message this way. I want, I want to read for you this quote to kind of give you a little bit more of a sense of what I'm talking about. It's by this guy named John Stott. He's been extremely helpful to me. For too often, what people see in the church is not counterculture, but conformism. Not a new society which embodies their ideals but another version of the old society they have renounced. Not life, but death. What he's saying, what John Stott is saying is that too often when people look from the outside in on the church, what they see is not a counterculture. They do not see a people uh, with a set of convictions that they're living out but what they see is not life, but death. Not counterculture, but conformity. They think of the church and they think, wow, that's just... Church represents all the stuff we got past. Right? Church represents racism, hate. Church represents all the things that we are trying to get past. And we need to recapture Jesus's actual vision for us to start this counterculture, amen? So that we can be a people who literally are ambassadors for this reality as we're praying on our knees in Gloucester as it is in heaven. That it wouldn't just be a prayer, but it would be reflected in our lives and how we live, and Jesus' values would be our values, and the kingdom values would be lived out through us. So we're going to look at the eight Beatitudes. We're going to look at the beginning of this word. So I'm going to read for us Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before them. It's the word of the Lord. So what's a beatitude? Anybody know? <laughs> Comes from a Latin word, blessing. And, and the idea here is, if you look it up in the dictionary, it's just supreme blessedness. So it's a state of mind, not a circumstance. Amen? It's a reality in you and beyond you. And you will see in these promises, these, this blessedness, this happiness, this state of mind and heart, it outlasts this life. So it's this happiness that we're looking for that we have in the kingdom, which isn't just in this life only, but it's promised in the life to come as well. So let's look at these Beatitudes. There's only eight points this sermon, so it'll never end. Amen? <laughs> Blessed are the poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. See, there's two reasons that in Matthew, he's always talking about the kingdom of heaven. And when you look at Luke and you look at the other gospels, what you'll see is the kingdom of God. But Matthew especially was written to a Jewish audience where you don't drop the G word lightly in the Jewish culture. You do, even when you write it out, even people who are Orthodox Jews to this day, even when they're writing it in English, they will write G dash D. And so in the sensibilities of relating, see the gospel is for everybody in every culture. And in that trying to be sensitive to those sensibilities, Matthew writes it, the kingdom of heaven. But the other thing is he is calling into mind this reality that there's this whole unseen hierarchy in the universe. When you think of heaven in the Bible, there are three heavens. The first heaven is the sky that you see. And the second heaven is outer space where all the planets are and the stars are. And the third heaven, if you ever read the Bible and it says third heaven and you're like, what is that? It's talking about God's home. It's talking about where God himself dwells. And here's the thing. The kingdom of heaven includes what we think of when we hear heaven, but it includes everything. 
It includes this life. And see, the king, God's rule is most manifest and most pure and most visible in this place we call heaven, right? But God's rule is throughout the entire universe. And even on this earth, where there's a lot of brokenness, where there's a lot of hard things that people are going through, poverty, sickness, death, even here, God is getting this world back. He is redeeming this entire world. And he's making things that are sad and broken, and he's making them whole again. And he's healing, and he's redeeming this world. Jesus' whole message, in a sense, is repent for the kingdom of God is near. Repent. Turn away from your sins. Why? Because the kingdom of God is near. And what does he mean by that? He is the king. He's the king. He has come to this place that tries to run from God. And a lot of religion is all about well, do X, Y, Z and try to pursue God, but the Bible acts like all that's for nothing. Actually, we're not chasing after God. We're not doing a bunch of rituals to make him happy with us. Actually, God is chasing us down. And a lot of times, kicking and screaming. A lot of times, we, we, we're like running from him, and he's grabbing us. And he's not grabbing us to beat us. He's not grabbing us to tell us we're wrong. He's grabbing us to side tackle us out of the way of ourselves and the foolishness that we lead ourselves into because he loves us. Now he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. An entire sermon could be devoted to this. What's the difference between poor in spirit and poor? And I have a lot we could go into on that, but we have seven more Beatitudes. <laughs> Amen. So here's some signs. Here's some signs that you are poor in pocket, but not poor in spirit. So let's just go right there, right? So you are poor in pocket, but not poor in spirit if you're poor and greedy. And we all know people, and maybe have been people, who've been poor and greedy. <laughs> Amen? You're not poor in spirit, but you might be poor in pocket if you're poor and manipulative. Like you have nothing and you will do whatever you can to get what you need. You're not poor in spirit if you're poor and proud. You're not poor in spirit if you're poor and demanding. See, true poverty of the spirit is understanding that you have nothing in front of God. This is poverty of spirit, right? Poverty of spirit is, um, I tell you, hey, there's this job. Um, you need, a, you need a, a clean license and, and record. And you got this massive record and no license. And you go to the job interview anyway, and you just tell them, I have nothing, and I need this job. That's how we go to God. We go to God knowing we don't got the license. We go to God knowing we don't have the background. We go to God knowing and saying we have nothing to offer. 
And we're not too proud to just not show up, right? Because we can, we can be like, I have nothing, and you know what? I'm going to be nothing. And, and, and no, there's no faith in that. Poor in spirit is going to God with nothing and asking him for everything. Amen. Amen. See, you could read all of this scripture and, and get the impression that the kingdom of heaven is this earned kingdom, but actually the kingdom of heaven is a received kingdom. It's a gift. It's a gift. And it's a gift to those who come to him poor in spirit. It's a gift to those who come to him with nothing in their hands. It's hard to receive from God when your hands are full of stuff that you're unwilling to let go of. Well, I got this good family. Well, I got this job. Well, I, I'm really trying. Sometimes I volunteer here and there. I give money when I can. I'm going to give money to the people, the Red Cross from Florence. All the folks suffering there. No, you have to go to God empty-handed, poor in spirit. You need to understand that the kingdom of God is a hookup. It is. It's like when your cousin gets you that job, even though you don't have a clean license or any license, and gets you that job anyway, even though you don't have any training and you need to be trained and you have a bad record, receiving the kingdom of heaven is entirely a hookup. It's entirely an act of grace. Blessed are those who mourn. Somebody say mourn. For they shall be comforted. This isn't just any kind of mourning, but a mourning over your sin. This kind of pain, it feels it feels so right. It's a beautiful thing. It's the kind of pain that you'd have before you give birth. This is the kind of mourning that leads to comfort, that leads to being comfort. This isn't just any mourning. And I've seen it. And I've seen it in particular in this community in this church family in the last couple weeks, and it's been beautiful. I have seen people come to other folks and say, listen, I am sorry for the way I've been acting. It hasn't been right. People have said that to me. People that have said that to other folks. A kingdom community, a countercultural community, is a community that's willing to mourn over our shortcomings. A, a community that's willing to be able to see our shortcomings. It's a community that's willing to say, we were wrong. And look at that and mourn over it. And look to God to comfort us. And not look at it and say, oh, let me forget about that. Let me just distract myself. I'm not the person I thought I was going to be. Oh man, let me just drown myself and distract myself in the things of this world. No, a counterculture of Jesus can mourn and know that God will comfort them. This kind of mourning is beautiful. I have a friend who's extremely sick and when she was about to go for surgery recently, she had this moment of reality in her eyes, right? Like, I don't know if I'm going to get through this. 
and had this moment of being able to admit, I'm like a party person. I'm always trying to distract myself. I'm always trying to joke and be in a good mood and I'm not facing the things in my life that I need to face. And, and I prayed with her. And you know what happened? Well, after she got through all that, it went right back to spend money, to doing what you want, and to being detached and not wanting to go down that road, which seems hard. That road of mourning and facing who you really are is scary. Nobody wants to do that. Like nobody wants to sign up for, let me examine myself to the point where I actually see who I truly am. It's terrifying, but it's necessary. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Again, Jesus turns our entire way of looking at life upside down. It's not the strong, it's not those who get it done, it's not the one who makes it happen, but it's the humble that inherit the whole world. And we're taught by school and TV and the radio and the culture all around us not to be humble, but to work more and more and more on our self-esteem. That the greatest truth that we can wrap our hearts around and our minds around is, you know what, be true to yourself. This is the thing, this is the interesting thing about the counterculture of Jesus. Jesus taught his disciples, his followers, to be forceful about the truth, but humble about themselves. He taught his followers to be forceful about the truth, but humble about themselves. Humble to the point, we're going to get to it later, where Jesus says, when somebody hates you and they hit you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek so they can hit you there too. But our culture all around us, and this is why we need a counterculture, our culture all around us has decided that it's way better to be forceful about your own dignity to be forceful about yourself and how people see you and how you see yourself, but very humble about the truth outside of yourself. So we say, like, who are we to condemn anybody? Who are we to say what's right and wrong? What is true? It's, everything's true. Some might be true for you, but it's not true for me. But then when you insult me, nah, we are petty. All of a sudden we're forceful. All of a sudden we're throwing hands. <laughs> We've got it backwards. We've got it backwards. In the counterculture of Jesus, when people say stuff about us personally, we're like, yeah, what you said about me, that's half the truth. I'm worse than you think. <laughs> right? Because we are grounded in a greater truth. Right? But then when people are saying stuff about the truth, we're able to speak up. We're, we're able to say, no, we believe certain things. We want to stake our lives on certain things beyond just ourselves, beyond just you feeling good about me and me feeling good about me. That's so ridiculously pointless. We 
we live in a world that will stand up for nothing but ourselves. The whole world tells you, stand up for yourself. Other than that, you stand up for something, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you get beat down like whack-a-mole, right? Like you ever play that game? And, and you just gotta keep beating it down. Sometimes we feel like that with our sins. We feel like we're trying to manage the sin in our life and we got that big mallet and we're like, oh, anger popped up again, boom. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was looking at that girl wrong again, boom. <laughs> right? And that's how we feel. But the kingdom of God is for those who are willing to get in the fight against their flesh. It's, it's for those who are willing to mourn, those who are humble, it's for those who hunger and thirst. And what is the promise? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they shall be satisfied. They shall be filled. Are you hungry for righteousness? One of the ways you can know if you're a follower of Christ, a true Christian, is if you're hungry. Who here has ever felt frustrated untangling a huge ball of Christmas lights. You know what I mean? That's going to happen soon for some of us. We're going to be untangling that ridiculous ball that we have, like maybe under our porch, you know what I mean? Or in a garage somewhere or in a shed somewhere. And it's like, you know, that's a good, that also, you know what I mean? Like if you find me in those moments, don't judge me for what I say or do. You know what I'm saying? Because that's just a frustrating situation. But um, I was talking to our church's electrician, our resident electrician, Chris Yuki, <laughs> and, and he was telling me about the difference between lights. You know, you, you got a string of lights, and you got the serial circuit, and then you got the parallel circuit, right? And we know the difference. The serial one is you get one light out and all the other lights go out. And those are the worst because you plug it in when, before you even untangle it and like half of it's dark and you're like, come on. <laughs> now I got to look through this whole string of lights, right? But there's also the other kind, the parallel circuit. And... See, in the kingdom of God, we are wired together. We, we, we are tied together. But we do not ride on each other's hunger and thirst for righteousness. Like my hunger and thirst for righteousness, while it can be a blessing to my sister Sue, it, I can't be hungry and thirsty for righteousness for her. We are wired together, but we are wired parallel. If your light's out, your light's out. No one else's. You are responsible before God to have your faith. Are you hungry and thirsty for righteousness? Do you want to be filled? And if you have to totally ride on other people's enthusiasm and faith all the time, there are two possibilities. Maybe you are a true Christian, but you have been living real foolishly. It's like the teenager, you ever have like a Thanksgiving meal and there's some teenager who's sitting out in front in the car, 
eating a bag of Doritos and you've got green bean casserole, sweet potato pie, turkey, it's all cooking in there. But there's that one family member that's like, like eating chips in the car. And then they get there and they're like, I'm not hungry. And, and we do that spiritually. Do you get it? We do that spiritually. God is like, come to me hungry. Come, hear the word of God. Come, open up your Bible, read it, pray. Come, be filled with my joy. Let me guide you every day. Ask me, what should I do today? How can I please? And then what we do is we're like, well, well, well okay, but, but um, that's like, turkey and green beans and all that stuff but we're gonna do our own thing and we're gonna open up this bag of Doritos over here you know and we'll get by we'll get by with like three hours of Netflix <laughs> you know what I mean we'll, we'll get by. we're hungry our souls are hungry and we're looking for satisfaction and to quench our thirst in the wrong places but another option is that you just have never had your eyes open to how beautiful God really is. And you don't desire him. But either way, I invite you to pray with me like this. This is a great way to pray. God, make me hungry for you. God, make me thirsty for you. God, make sin the things that you don't want for me. Make sin like ash in my mouth. So when I pop up that bag of Doritos and put it in my mouth, it's like I want to spit it out. Make your truth and love my real food. Oh Lord, may I be satisfied in you. Amen. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Another way is to walk around thinking you, you've been forgiven. If you've been forgiven, you're going to forgive other people, right? You're not going to be one of those people like, I just hold grudges. You know, it's in my blood. You, you know what I mean? Like, I'm just, this, this is what I am. This is like my culture. We just, we just, when we don't talk to somebody, we don't talk to them. You know what I mean? No, you don't do that. You don't get that option. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. See, every single one of these qualities, Jesus didn't just say, blessed are you when you're this. He didn't say this describes the kingdom of God. He lived it out. He was the most merciful man. He was the most pure man. He was the most poor in spirit, most humble man that ever walked the face of the earth. And even hanging on a cross, he looked out at the people who put him there, and what did he say? He said, Lord, have mercy on them. Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus never said what we might have heard growing up. Don't do as I do. Do as I say. Jesus says, blessed are you when you walk this path, and then he embodied it, and he lived it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. When I preached a few weeks ago about sex, I talked about how Jesus calls us to this radical chastity and charity. It's not, sometimes we think it's like one or the other. We get to choose, you know? 
but it's both. And we need patience and grace for ourselves and others as we grow in both. But this is the question I have for you. I want to see God. Do you want to see God? This is, this is our first issue. We often don't hear, we often don't see, we often don't feel God in our lives because our conscience, the Bible says, has been seared as with a hot iron. It stops working right. Just the other day, I was at a local shop and I saw some folks talking to their kids and it was like, really little kids like, ah ha ha, you're evil, you're evil little girl, ha ha. And it's how we joke. It's a part of our identity. It's a part of our lives. It's like the skin that holds everything together. There's this song by 21 Pilots called Heathen and it goes like this. All my friends are heathens, take it slow. Wait for them to ask who you know. Please don't make any sudden moves. You don't know half of the abuse. We don't deal with outsiders very well. They say newcomers have a certain smell. Yeah, I have trust issues, trust issues not to mention. They say they can smell your intentions. You're loving on the freak show sitting next to you. So what's happening here? You have this description. And by the way, it's very fascinating that band, they are all they are all believers in Jesus, which is really interesting. And we tend to identify ourselves a certain way as sort of outside the norm so that we can be with other people and feel like, okay, we couldn't fit in, right? We couldn't fit in. So like we start to joke that way, but this is what happens. Jesus doesn't want you to disqualify yourself from purity off the bat. It doesn't matter how much you've been dragged through the mud. I don't care what happened to you and what you willingly did. God, forgives us and he cleanses us. We can be pure. We can start fresh. Because beneath this skin of irony is actual impurity. Beneath that skin that holds us together where we joke and joke and brag about how we don't fit in or whatever is jealousy, insecurity, and thoughts that seem bigger than us. Have you ever had like desires in you that you feel like you couldn't even control them? All of us have. All of us have that. There's this classic book by this author, Eugene Peterson. It's called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. A long obedience in the same direction. That's his definition of what purity is. It's just going in one direction towards God for a really long time, not going off on different paths, not going in a circle. I know a lot of times I feel like I'm doing donuts in the parking lot when it snowed. You know what I mean? And I'm just, and like that's how I feel like my spiritual walk is. I make a little progress. I'm going, and then I turn back. <laughs> And now I'm back where I was. And it's like I'm just circling around and circling around. But in the kingdom, there's a possibility for purity. And the promise is to see God himself. 
Blessed are the peacemakers. So they are the sons of God. Peacemaking, by the way, that Jesus is talking, this is like on the UN. Jesus' sermon, by the way, and this whole entire message has shaped the entire world. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. But it's shaped our culture. It's written in stone on the UN building. It's written in stone on all kinds of hospitals and nonprofits. It's remade the world in a totally different image. But blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of God. Peacemaking is not the same as peacekeeping. Now that's where we go, right? Let's just keep the peace. No drama. I don't want no drama. And a lot of times, peacemaking means I have to run through drama to end the conflict. I have to have this conversation where I know there's going to be yelling. I have to make steps in a direction where I know for a moment, for a while even, it's going to be less looking like peace. But the result is we are moving towards making peace. Blessed are the persecuted, for the kingdom of heaven is there. We're back to the kingdom of heaven, right? Back to the kingdom of God, which leads always to persecution. I, I joke with the pastor in Camden, our mother church, Pastor Ernest, that like being a pastor is being someone who's a professional person who gets to have people look at them funny every single day, right? Every single day, because we just say crazy stuff. We say stuff like, come to church. You know what I mean? Like, who are you? I don't know you, <laughs> right? Can I pray for you? Okay, yeah, I guess. <laughs> Right? Sometimes, though, pastors including, but all of us Christians, sometimes people are going to look at us funny for the way we live our lives for Jesus and, and be countercultural. Jesus says it right there, that they're gonna, they persecuted the prophets, they're going to persecute you. Sometimes we deserve to be looked at funny because Christians can act unnecessarily weird and be sinfully judgmental or overly critical or even in just the weakness and our own hurts not represent Jesus in our lives. But if you're going to follow Jesus and if you're here and you're like, I'm hanging around this stuff and I'm thinking about it, I need to give you full disclosure. When you come to Christ and you make it a huge part of your life and you follow him, there will be pushback. There will absolutely be pushback. And in fact, if you experience no pushback, you need to wonder, am I following Jesus? Because if nobody's looking at me sideways ever about this, am I so avoiding conflict? Am I so peacekeeping versus peacemaking Am I so incognito in my faith, like a chameleon, and whoever I'm with, I change, and I'm exactly like that person, and then I come here, and I'll change, and I'm like somebody else, right? But you have to wonder if I'm in this kingdom of heaven. I mean, persecution can look like how it looks like right now in China, where they're going into 
villages and they're saying, oh, that picture of the cross, you need to take it down and you need to put up a picture of President Xi. You don't need to pray to Jesus to be healed. You need to enroll in our healthcare system. And in fact, we are going to demolish your churches and take your church leaders and put them in re-education camps. And can you imagine, like I can't imagine my wife and my kids just not having me for a couple years while I'm forced to break stones somewhere and be taught all the time how there is no God and how great the president is and how great communism is. So persecution looks different in different parts of the world and at different times. But it's always there. There's always some pushback. And we're getting closer to Christmas. And what we've done in the past and what we're going to do is we will remember those people who are in prison for their faith. We do that every year. Something my family has done, something we did last year with the kids. And Hebrews 13, 3 says, remember your brothers and sisters in chains as if you were with them. And so we will write Christmas cards and send them out. And even if they don't get them, you know what that shows? Like thousands of people are writing these cards. It's like, oh wow, people know these folks are in prison. It's advocacy. It's a prayer. And there are testimonies of people who got out, who were in prison for years, and they said, these letters that I got, they got to me. I read them, and they were life. They allowed me to make it another day, to know that I wasn't alone. Let me ask you as we close. I talked about how this whole description of the kingdom life, this whole counterculture, it's not something you can earn. It's something that is received. And will you receive this? Will you walk in this? Will you pray with me? Will you pray that your life would look more like the kingdom of heaven, your family, your work, your heart, your marriage, your habits? that his, his will would be done. His kingdom would come in your life. Would you pray with me? Would you bow your head and, and pray along with me right now? Father God, we thank you. We thank you, God, that you are the one who causes us to come into this crazy counterculture where the world shows that the people who inherit the earth are the ones who flex, they're the ones who force, the ones who just make it happen. And your kingdom is for those who are last. And your kingdom is built on love, not on force. I want to pray for anyone here that has ever experienced like a perversion of Christianity. We, we, like we read earlier that sometimes instead of counterculture, we get conformism and it's just fit into this square 
thing, fit in, and we feel like we don't fit in. And I just pray for anybody here like that that has felt forced into something they can't fit, that you would minister them now, that you would work in their hearts. Lord, I, I pray, God, that we would hear loud and clear that your kingdom is for the last, that it's received, that it changes us from the inside out, that it's not for the perfect, it's not for the people who have it all figured out, but it's for those who are struggling in life and say, I'm not coming to you with all my goodness, but I'm coming to you in my need. And I pray that as we heard this description of the kingdom, we would want all these things increasingly in our lives. We would want to be men and women who are poor in spirit, who are humble, who are forgiving and merciful, who make peace, who mourn over our sins. Oh Lord, do this in us, we pray. Amen.